We have so many young single people in here. My friend um, and author, Professor Alex Chediak, is coming next Sunday. Some of you know who he is. He was, a couple of you have met him before. He was a, an intern for John Piper and did a lot of his editing. He currently um, edits for Reformation Trust with um, R.C. Sproul, edits some of his books currently. He also has written his own book. He's a professor down at Cal Baptist, Southern California. He's written his own book called With One Voice. Um, I think it's Singleness, Dating, and Marriage to the Glory of God as a subtitle. And uh, he is coming next week. He's going to be preaching on the topic of singleness, dating, and marriage to the glory of God. Amazingly enough, we're going to have books available uh, that he has, that, that are out. They're actually published by a legit publisher. It wasn't like a, you know, some kind of home publishing or, or anything like that. So, so you're aware. We're going to have those available. I think they're like $7.50 or something like that. Um, and we're going to have a time after the service uh, for those of you who are uh, young single people, even older single people, that's fine too, who are um, welcome to go to lunch with him and, uh, and talk with him. He's going to do it for Q&A. Um, he wants to talk to you about, and he doesn't want to date you. He's married. <laughs> He's married. But he would like to meet you, interact with you, um, have time for Q&A with you so that you can ask questions that you have um, about that topic. And, and so, so you're aware. Invite your friends. If you have single friends, you know people who... And some of you are going, Why, how is that helpful to me? Well, they're wondering the same thing when I preach on Mother's Day, right? About moms or Father's Day. If I do that, they're wondering the same thing. Here's, here's the issue. Wrong question is, how is this sermon necessarily helpful to me? Right question is... How is God's truth being communicated for the benefit of the body? And how can I learn that so I can encourage other believers who may not be in the same place I am? Right? Um, and then also, how does it encourage me? So you're aware. Anyways, all right. Psalm 99, if you were there. Psalm 99. <clears throat> the Lord reigns. Let the people trum- peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. Let me pray. Lord, we come to you with recognition that we need your spirit to illumine our minds so that we understand your word, to soften our hearts so that we rejoice in it. Lord, so that we live it out, so that we're repentant before it. Lord, we come to you recognizing that we are a people who sadly do not see you as holy as you are who often rail against you, who question your character, who question your providential works, Lord, who 
see grace as a light thing, who see our sin as a light thing, who do not recognize that you are the God of all things. You have created them all. You are high and lifted up. You are holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. I pray that we would exalt you today as we look at the text, as we consider who you are. Lord, I pray that you would give us insight into your character and love for you so that we would rejoice in you and worship as you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is God's most essential characteristic? If you had to pick a characteristic, what is his most essential characteristic? I ask this question of people often because I think the answer to the question will direct our daily lives in worship. And if you asked around, most people I've asked anyways, would answer the question with which characteristic? Love. Thank you. You got it. Right on. Good. Either you're, you've got really bad theology or, or you, you hear other people with it. But no, people answer love is the most essential characteristic. And his love must be like ours, is what they posit. That not only is love his most central characteristic, but his love must be like our love, because he couldn't be less loving than me, and therefore his behavior must be similar, and his attitude must be similar to mine. They say things like, I would never damn anyone or send anyone to hell. And I certainly would never choose to save only this narrow group of people who are blessed enough to have heard the gospel and to have been born again. And if that's true of me, then that must be true of him as well. I would never condemn another religion and say it's wrong. Certainly not evil. That would be unloving. And neither would God because he can't be less loving than me. I don't make too big a deal of sin. I, in fact, I enjoy it a bit. And so I don't think he would make too big a deal of it either. I love life to be lighthearted and filled with jocularity, and I love me enough to be permissive of all kinds of small sin that accommodates this lifestyle, and so would he. I want to divorce my spouse and marry someone else. Certainly, God is loving enough that he wouldn't want me in this kind of marriage, so he'll be okay with this. I want to participate in extramarital activities, premarital activities with someone of the opposite sex, or um, in our culture, the same sex. And certainly, certainly, if I really have this desire, God must be somewhat okay with it. I love certain kinds of activities in a worship service. And certainly he loves me enough to let me worship him in any way that I see fit. And while it's true that God is loving His love does not behave in this manner because his love is controlled and dictated and directed by another attribute or characteristic. 
His love is controlled and dictated and directed by a characteristic which I believe is the most essential of all of God's characteristics, which is his crown, his majesty, and his glory. So what is it? Well, some theologians say it's his aseity. That's probably helpful to you. His aseity, his self-existence. What could be more essential, they would say, of God than the fact that he is self-existent, independent, non-contingent, uncreated, uncaused, is not derived from something else? And I think a case can be made for the fact that his aseity is incredibly important, obviously. However, however, there is no characteristic of God, I want you to hear this, no characteristic of God more spoken of in Scripture, no characteristic more ascribed to God's name, no characteristic more worshipped, more rejoiced in, more feared, more trembled before, or defining of God than his holiness. Stephen Sharnock, a, a Puritan who most of you are probably not familiar with, who wrote in the 1600s, says that the holiness of God Actually, I think early 1700s anyways. Holiness of God is his glory and his crown. It is the essential glory of his nature. He goes on to argue that to deny God's holiness is worse than to deny his being. For Sharnock says, to deny his being makes him no God, but to deny the purity of his being makes him a deformed, unlovely, and detestable God. Frankly, for any of his attributes to be attractive, they have to be crowned by his holiness. They have to be dressed in his holiness. Apart from his holiness, what would his sovereignty be but tyranny and despotism? His power would be monstrous. His justice would be unrighteousness. His love would approve of all sorts of evil. His wisdom and promise would be untrustworthy. When we talk about the holiness of God, when we talk about the holiness of God, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think we usually think about his holiness as an attribute, right? This is a characteristic of God. Kind of like he's gracious, he's loving, he's holy. And when we think of holiness this way, we're thinking of holiness as God's ethical character, a moral attribute, his purity. And that's true. And this is mostly what I've been describing. In fact, that's mostly what is talked about in Scripture, God is morally and ethically pure. He's without fault, sin, or blame. He is himself perfection. His moral character is so utterly pure that seeing him brings death, and being in his presence causes a man like Isaiah to say what? Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and i live among a people of unclean lips even even as holy angels angels who've never sinned never sinned even the angels have a derived holiness they have a derived holiness even they in his presence cover their eyes and their feet 
God's holiness is infinite, infinite and eternal. It's essential and it's necessary. God is so morally pure that even the angels never sinned, cover their eyes and their feet in his presence. Does that blow you away? Think of all that the Bible has to say about the word holy. Listen to the way it's used. In scripture, God has a holy name. His presence is holy. He is the holy one. There is or are a holy Sabbath, holy ground, holy garments, a holy crown, a holy convocation, holy anointing oil, a holy assembly, a holy abode, a holy place, a holy city, holy water, a holy hill, a holy mountain, a holy temple, a holy arm, a holy will, a holy promise, a holy word, a holy people, a holy nation, and a holy son. He is holy. His spirit is holy. His actions are holy. His angels are holy. His prophets and priests are holy. Sacrifices and offerings to him are holy. His law is holy. There is even a holy kiss in Scripture. Scholars will tell you that the Hebrew and Greek word for holy can both mean, can they, both of those words, and the Hebrew and the Greek word, can both mean separate. And that's true. God is separate, and he set apart his people, his name, and his possessions. However, however, that meaning separate can severely limit our understanding of this word for holy. Because the idea of holiness, the holiness of God in Scripture, encompasses, one, his separateness, two, his ethical purity, and three, his transcendence or glory the idea that he is altogether high and lifted up. What do the angels cry out? What do they cry out? They cry out, separate, separate, separate. What do we cry out in heaven? Love, 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 grace, grace. No, what do we cry out? Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is, and is to come. Why? Why do we cry that out? Because holiness is, as the Princess scholar A.A. A. Hodge has said, his total glory thus crowned, his consummate perfection and total glory. Holiness speaks not just of his ethical purity or his moral purity, but it speaks of his august Majesty. What does the word august mean? Majestic majesty. So today I want to discuss. The word discuss is a little too weak. I want to preach, right? Today I want to preach three aspects of the Lord's holiness. Three aspects of the Lord's holiness that should be worshipped, exalted, or rejoiced in. And the first one is starting here in Psalm 99, 1 through 3, and it's this. Yahweh, or the Lord, is holy in his sovereignty. He is holy in his sovereignty and should be worshipped. Holy in his sovereignty, his rule, his reign, and should be worshipped. Look at what it says in verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. 
God rules over all things and does so in holiness. And look what it says here. It says he, not only does he reign and the peoples tremble at that, but he sits enthroned upon the cherubim and the earthquakes. What is it to sit enthroned upon the cherubim? The cherubim were angels, type of angel that were put on the mercy seat. What's the mercy seat? The mercy seat was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments, God's law, right? And the cherubim were on top of it. They symbolized holiness, cherubim did. And the Ark of the Covenant with God's law, with the cherubim on top of it, were, was, excuse me, was placed in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, where God was president, or president, present. That's true too, I suppose, but he wasn't a representative sort of leader, right? He'd said, we didn't vote. But anyways, you understand the point. He was present in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. And what he's saying here, what the psalmist is saying is, he sat on top of the cherubim. It's the idea that he's ruling or reigning, and he's doing so in a way that's holy. And his feet, as he goes on to say, were resting on the mercy seat. He is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who rules. He is the one who is the giver of the law. He is the one who is the judge. He is the one who providentially decides all things. He's seated there. The picture here is of the Lord, the one whose name wasn't even allowed to be spoken, by the way, the one who is life in himself, who is comprehensively sovereign, reigning and sitting enthroned, and who will utterly destroy, listen, utterly destroy all those who offend his holiness. If you walked into that holy of holies and you were not purified of your sin, it had not been atoned for, one priest went in there once a year, he could die. He would die if that was the case. They tied a rope around his ankle so they could pull his dead body out. He is the one who will utterly destroy all those who offend his holiness and yet, and yet offers mercy, forgiveness, and redemption to those who trust him. That's why he sits atop the mercy seat on the cherubim with his feet resting there. It's a picture of what would eventually take place in the death of Jesus. How? What they would do is to enter there, they would actually go in and put um, the blood of a goat right on top of the mercy seat, blood of, put it on top of the mercy seat to atone for their sin, to propitiate, to make satisfaction for the wrath of God. They had another goat that they would send off that was a picture of expiation or a picture of the idea that their sin had been uh, forgiven and they would watch it walk off, right? They would, somebody would walk it off and they'd watch as it walked off in the distance and they would see their sin walk away from them. And it was a picture of forgiveness. But they also had the one that they would slaughter and put its blood on the mercy seat because God's wrath had to be exercised so the people could be forgiven. As a picture of that, Jesus took the place of those goats. Jesus was the one upon whom God's wrath was poured out and through whom we receive forgiveness of sins. Here, in this scene, and in Jesus' death, we see two things. We see that the Lord is both an avenger against evil to be feared 
He is holy and just, and his justice will vindicate his holiness. And at the same time, he is a loving redeemer of sinners to be adored. See, both things. When God's holy wrath rings forth, the earth quakes and the people tremble. And in either case, whether it be because of his wrath and justice or it be because of his forgiveness, grace, in either case, he is to be praised. What happened when the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, the cross? Sky turned dark. The earth shook, didn't it? As God's wrath was exercised against his son. See, we often see the cross, correct me if I'm wrong, but we often see the cross only as a demonstration of God's love, don't we? And you know, it certainly is a demonstration of God's love, undoubtedly. But what we don't realize is that it's also a demonstration of his awesome holiness and anger against sin. Because he loved us enough to do what? Punish his son in our place. But we only want to praise God. We only want to praise God for the love part, right? I mean, his wrath is not an attribute that we usually have in songs that we sing about, you know? We're so thankful for your wrath, oh God. No, we're not, right? But we, we don't often praise him for his wrath and anger, burning fury against us, do we? We don't have paintings. I, I think I always make this joke about the paintings of Jesus. You see paintings of Jesus, and always the painting you see of Jesus is the one where he's holding the, the lamb, right? Or it's, it's really nice. It's the kind of painting you want to show to your children, right? You want to put up in the Sunday school rooms. We don't ever put the painting of Jesus that's in Revelation 19 up in the Sunday school room or in the church foyer or in our office, right? Because we don't want to paint that even. That's the painting where Jesus comes down and gathers all the unbelievers in Revelation 19, gathers them all up into what's like a wine vat, and then stomps on all their heads until his robe is covered with their blood. That's actually like grapes. That's actually a picture in Revelation 19. I just don't see that one up on anybody's wall, right? I don't see any of us going, man, that's a great picture of Jesus. In fact, God's holiness, exercising his justice and wrath, is kind of like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of like that uncle or cousin that none of us wants to talk about, right? You know, it's kind of the, the redheaded stepchild of theology. Sorry if you're a redheaded stepchild, but you understand the illustration. <laughs> it's not the one we want to discuss we don't like to admit God even has a right to rule in this manner. Why don't we praise God? Why don't we praise God for his awesome holiness when it manifests itself in his terrifying wrath? You know what Spurgeon said? C.H. Spurgeon, great preacher, 1800s. You know what he said? It's because our sinful hearts cry out for an effeminate God in whom pity has strangled justice. However, God can, God can teach our hearts to rejoice in him and praise him for all of his character attributes. God is the one, listen, God is the one who has the right to do all his holy will decrees. No man, woman, or child has any right to question his holy reign. 
He's God. We're not. His reign and rule and sovereignty must be holy for he is by nature and necessity holy. Holiness is not some standard that God resides over and is not some standard that God submits under. Holy is he. If he does it, it is holy because he is holy. All things are from him and through him and to him. For by all things, by him, excuse me, by him, all things live and move and have their being. He's appointed the times and places and seasons where men should live. He's the lawgiver, the covenant maker, and the covenant keeper. And everything, everything he decrees is holy. Everything he wills and does is holy. For he is holy. Therefore, his utter holiness and absolute sovereignty should direct us to worship and praise him for who he is and not for who we want him to be. And on his terms and not on our terms. Second, the Lord is holy in his justice and should be worshipped. If I said the Lord is holy, you say, this sounds like the same thing. Yes, the whole Lord is holy in his ability and right to do whatever he wants. But however, what I want to say next is that he is holy and right in everything he actually does. Not just in his right to do it, not just in his right or ability to do it, but in his actual executing of his decrees. He is holy and right. Look at what it says here in verse 4. The king in his might loves justice. Did you guys hear that? The king, the Lord, in his might, his power. Imagine if his power did not love justice. How horrifying that would be. How monstrous it would be. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed. See that? He's done justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Do you see this? At the end of verse 3, what does he proclaim? Holy is he. At the end of verse Five, holy is he. At the end of verse nine, the Lord our God is holy. Spurgeon actually called this the holy, holy, holy psalm. Because three times it's repeated. Every stanza, or excuse me, main part is broken down into holy is he. Holy is he. The Lord our God is holy. He reigns, and he does so in a holy manner. He is just. He is righteous in everything he does. Not just his right to do it, but everything he actually does is holy because he is holy. All of his providential acts, all of his sovereign governing is holy. Yet in spite of his love of justice, in spite of his love of justice, in spite of his use of his power for righteousness, in spite of that, we, we fallen and wicked creatures dare to question his holy will, don't we? We raise our fist at him and say, who are you to do this to me? What right do you have to allow this to happen to me? Any God who would do this must be unjust. 
We read passages like um, Ephesians 1, where it said that God chose us in him to be holy and blameless before the foundation of the world. And we say, well, that's good. But then we realize that he didn't choose everyone in the same way. And we say, what right do you have to do that? We read passages like, God will have mercy on whom God will have mercy. And we respond, certainly you must be unjust. Yet who are we as creatures to question the holiness and justice of the creator? If he were to manifest, listen, if he were to manifest even the infinitesimally smallest part of his holiness in this room, we would be in utter terror. We would be on our faces, undone. Our mouths would be stopped. And yet we walk around like peacocks with our feathers up as if we somehow have the right to question whether God is governed rightly. He's holy. He loves justice and righteousness. He applies his power and might to do justice and righteousness. He is sovereign over whom he shows mercy. He is holy and righteous in his decision to be merciful to whom he wills. It is not our feet on top of the mercy seat. They're his feet on top of the mercy seat. It is not our backside occupying the top of the cherubim in the tabernacle. It's his throne. He is the Lord. He is holy. He is high and lifted up. We have no right to question him. None. None. Our mouths should be stopped. You know, I heard about a... um, counseling situation there's actually a a school and i won't name it but um, up in the northwest region and they were training people on counseling and one of the things they said is when you're this is christian counseling by the way in case you're wondering you may not feel like it's christian counseling once i tell you some of their counsel christian counselor and what he said was uh they taught the guys in the classes hey whenever you know god's done something and you're angry about it you feel like he doesn't have any right and you got somebody in there for counseling and that person's like You have no right, God, to do this to me. What you need to do is you need to get them to express that. And so here's what you do. You start off by telling them, you need to say, F you, God. And they actually said the word. That was the counsel, right? You should start there. And I'm just like, I'd be afraid. If I said, F you, God, I just don't know. I'm dead like that, right? I don't, the rest of you not, but me, that would be what God would do. Gone. You know what people were thinking? He's God. We don't say F you to him. We don't tell him you're wrong, even in the nice ways that we do it. We do it in nice ways, right? We, we would never do it in a mean way like that because we're a good cultured American citizen. We would never say F you, God. What we'd say is, you know, I just, I just, I don't think, the, I just don't know that I can trust that the Lord did the right thing here. I'm really questioning him. I think he's wrong. Right? I, and then, then we, we don't just stop there and say, you know what? But I know I trust him. Like David, who David's going, what's going on, Lord? And then eventually turns to, but you know what? You're holy and righteous and just. I trust you. What we do is we, we, we go from there over to this point where we start saying, you know what? I resent him. I'm angry with him. I'm angry with him. He, he must be. Not, I'm struggling with this. I'm questioning this. I'm not sure what the Lord's doing. But, but he's the Lord. I'm not. I trust him. He's holy. I'm not. 
I trust him. What we do is we go, I don't know what he's doing. I don't trust him. I'm bitter. I'm angry. He's out of line with me. He's God. We should not only worship, exalt, and rejoice him for his holy sovereignty, but we should rejoice in and worship and exalt him for his holy governance, his righteous providence, his justice and righteousness for the way he has acted, even when we don't get it. Third, Yahweh is holy. The Lord is holy in his merciful condescension and should be worshiped. He's holy in his merciful condescension and should be worshiped. Look at what it says here in verse 6. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. See, not only is the Lord holy, high and lifted up, transcendent, totally other, he is the Lord who infinitely condescends to show us mercy and love, to care for us, to be our God and take us as his people. Samuel and Aaron and Moses prayed, didn't they? And God answered their prayers. He cared for them. He heard them. He forgave them. He even, as it says here, disciplined them for their good. Our God has an infinitely holy love for his people. Our God, who is the maker of heaven and earth, who alone dwells in unapproachable light, he graciously, relentlessly pursues his people. His grace and mercy go through this whole psalm. Look at what it says right from the beginning. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Why? Why does he take us to the tabernacle? Because the tabernacle is the place that God condescended, didn't he? How can God be held in some little room? God condescended to be with his people. And God condescended to a place where he offered them mercy and grace. Simultaneously while demonstrating his holiness. Look at what it continues to say. He put his feet, or go to the end, excuse me, of verse um, 5. Exalt the Lord, our God. Notice that? Our God. He's our God. Worship at his footstool. His footstool here being the mercy seat. Goes to the whole psalm. There's a picture of God condescending to be with us. He's not only the God who is holy, 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 but he is the God who wants to condescend to be with us. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 57. 
You don't have to turn there. I just want you to hear this. Verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Now listen to this. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. He sent Jesus, his only son, the one whom Isaiah incidentally saw in Isaiah 6 when he said, I saw the Lord and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. Who did Isaiah see? You go forward to John the Gospel of John, you learn that he saw Jesus. He saw the Son of God. Prior to his incarnation, he saw him. And he cried, holy. Right? The angels, holy, 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 covering their face, covering their feet. Isaiah saying, woe is me, for I am undone. In the presence of the Son of God, that Son, he condescended to be a baby, to be one of us, to go to a cross for us. That shouldn't just direct our worship. That should drive us to worship him for his holiness. To think the holy God of all the universe condescended to be with us. Sinners. Creatures. We are a people who love so many idols, don't we? So many idols. What is an idol? An idol is when you take a good thing and you turn it into an ultimate thing and you sin to have it. Centrally. We love idols. We worship at their altar. We worship at the altar of pleasure, entertainment, worship at the altar of relationships. How do you know that? Well, I'll sin to have that thing. I need a relationship, so if it takes it, I will have sexual relations with this boy to keep him around. He is my God. Relationship with him is my God. I need to be happy. This person isn't cutting it. I will divorce them to find a way to be happy. My happiness is my God. We worship at the, at the altar of so many idols, all of which, all of which destroy us temporally and bring wrath to us eternally, never delivering on the promise that we think they hold for us. Isn't that true? And as Spurgeon said, who would not, who would not rather adore Yahweh, whose character is unsullied purity, unswerving justice, unbending truth, unabounded love, in a word, perfect holiness. If you're a believer, you need to turn to the Lord and worship him in the splendor of his holiness. If there is sin in your life that you somehow love more than him, repent of it. Turn to him. Know his grace. Rejoice in him. Recognize that you don't want to be like people you've, like you've probably been, 
like people you see in the Old Testament with the Jews, you know what they said? You know, we're God's people. We have the covenant. Abraham's our father. We can presume on his grace. Never really said that, but essentially that's what they did, right? When Jesus came along and said, you're in sin, what did they say? What, you're in slavery to sin, in fact. What did they say? Abraham's our father. Don't you understand? I went to a revival meeting. Once saved, always saved. I raised my hand. Right? I was born again. And we use that term so frivolously. Meanwhile, we trample on God's holiness. We don't love him or pursue him. Because what's really happened is that we have a profession that doesn't connect with the reality of a changed life because God's spirit hasn't done a work in us. And we need to repent, turn to him. Those of you who profess faith, repent, turn to him. Recognize he is your only hope. Jesus alone saves you and he does it through faith alone. There's nothing you can add to it. Your sin needs to be repented of. Your self-righteousness needs to be repented of. You can't bring your good works into his presence and think that somehow they're going to be accepted. There's filthy rags. He is holy. So holy that even angels who've never sinned cover their faces in his presence. And yet we think somehow we're going to bring a work before him that's going to be acceptable in and of ourselves. It's not going to happen. So if you're someone who professes faith, but has not turned to Christ in repentance, has not had the spirit change you, today's the day of salvation. And if you're a believer who not just professes it, but really walks with him, has had your life changed radically by him, but you keep running back to that old junk. Recognize who your God is. Recognize what he's done for you. Run back to him. Turn from it. Worship him. Exalt the Lord. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Let me pray. Lord, we, we thank you that you are a holy and righteous God. That you always act justly. Lord, and we thank you that you condescended to be with us. We didn't deserve that. We haven't earned it in any way. We didn't even ask for it. You did it. You condescended to be with us, to save us, to offer us forgiveness of sins and the declaration of righteousness through faith in Christ alone. Forgive us for trusting in our own righteousness. Forgive us for turning to idols. Forgive us for not exalting you as the holy God you are. 
for treating you as somehow less than you deserve. Pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. We're going to take communion now. It's for believers.